Good morning and welcome to yes another episode of an unqualified guide to the good life uh, episode nine of season two. Um, this is a show where we try to work out what so it means to live 10. well despite having what? Episode ten. It's episode ten. Yeah. Oh goodness, you're right. <sighs> good morning and welcome to yet another episode of an unqualified guide to the good life the show where we try to work out what it means to live well despite having no qualifications to do so it's episode 10 of season two and i'm so excited to be here and um i'm very aware that we're here at episode 10 which you will know or not depending on how nick decides to edit this introduction good morning nick how are you doing nick's here and i'm adam as usual i'm oh what a mess this all is today uh, Jesus Christ, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even... What? <laughs> okay. <laughs> In case none of that made sense to you, dear listener, the person who just butchered that introduction <laughs> is Adam. I'm Nick, who has to contend with him, and who, for once, or at least as of now, is not the person fucking up. So I'm enjoying this moment. <laughs> Welcome to our podcast, an unqualified, true to the name, uh, guide to good life. <laughs> this is the 10th episode of season two. And before we tell you about that, well, I mean, how are you, Adam? You know, what, uh, what's led to this? catastrophe uh, i thought i was okay but apparently the evidence does not speak to that truth um yeah i'm i'm okay i've got um a nice cup of coffee um good i've, I've developed a very dangerous um I, I, budding friendship with with a local coffee roastery nicholas <laughs> so i'm i i sometimes find myself there sort of perusing their beans and um weird. and asking about various flavor profiles and it does sound weird when you say it like that doesn't it yeah. um but but i i hadn't even finished my rwandan kinney beans when i bought some um mawami beans from burundi i don't think mawami is the strain of beans i believe mawami is where they were grown um i didn't check um so now I just have an, an abundance of coffee beans and I'm trying to drink my way through it, but clearly not enough before I started this because I ruined the introduction. <sighs> How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I, I do just want to point out that like putting exotic names to the different strains you consume does not conceal your addiction and make you sophisticated. <laughs> I don't think they're okay. exotic names. It's just where they come from. <laughs> yeah, but all this, all this talk, Adam... Is, uh, <laughs> I know what you're doing. You're just a, well, you're a bean hoarder. Transparent as always. I I guess so. I have... Well, I, you say bean hoarder. I probably have 300 grams of beans in the house. And I don't know if that counts as hoarding. Sounds illegal when you say it like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, how am I? I'm... I'm... I'm okay. You know, just... Um, Making my way through the days. Um, Make my you know, way downtown. Every every yep. day, every day that I struggle is another day. I remind myself that I'm not Rudy Giuliani, and uh, <laughs> a member of the Trump administration. And you know, then things don't seem so bad. Possible man in a li lizard suit. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, at um, least I'm not Rudy Giuliani. Yes. Talk, Nick. We to 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 get to the theme of this episode 
And really, I mean, we're mm. we're nearing the conclusion of season two, which um, maybe is as much of a relief to you as it is to us. But um, <laughs> this... No, we've got to back ourselves. I'm sorry season two is coming to such an abrupt end after this episode. No, not but, after this. Um, we've Jesus got some... Christ, we still have... No, like after the one... Uh, after the... Hey, listen, it's going to end after this episode. Not immediately. There's one more and then a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ. Okay, so... <laughs> we've been speaking about about you for the whole season yeah. and uh we're going to continue to do so until the season concludes and on this uh, penultimate episode um of the season we are talking about well really the relationship of beauty to morality and of aestheticism you know and mm. um there are many different ways in which to approach this i'm sure we'll only superficially cover a few um, and maybe if you have some more insights, then please do share them once you've heard our own. Um, or write to us now if you're confident that there are just ideas beyond our grasp that you know we're not going to cover <laughs> on this episode. But, um, but, but also, we won't be able to respond live because that's not how podcasts work. <laughs> that's true, but we will apologize for our... Actually, we won't <laughs> apologize. We'll stand behind our unqualified selves on... <laughs> the next episode um so to to lead us into this conversation i thought we would break with tradition which clearly is serving us so well as you can see by the introductions and um this time be the person to introduce the theme with a quote um and take mm -hmm. that role from adam and the quote is from roald dahl uh from his 1980 book the twits <laughs> as we're sometimes known ah. and uh it is, is as follows if a person has ugly thoughts, it begins to show on the face. And when that person has ugly thoughts every day, every week, every year, the face gets uglier and uglier until it gets so ugly you can hardly bear to look at it. A person who has good thoughts can never be ugly. You can have a wonky nose and a crooked mouth and a double chin and stick out teeth, but if you have good thoughts, they will shine out of your face like sunbeams and you will always look lovely. Yeah, that's what, what a nice quote. How very wholesome. Um, it is, isn't it? I think there's, there's probably something to that. That's you, you know, when you see someone who's like just a happy, um, you know, good-hearted person, they, they you you want to be, you know, you want to you want to bask in their presence, as it were. Indeed, indeed, indeed. When you see Rudy Giuliani, you want to run and scream. <laughs> He's like, if, if, if Marcus Aurelius is the patron saint of this show, Rudy Giuliani is like the patron devil of this show. <laughs> <laughs> He's like our in-house demon. <laughs> Could well be, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's, a very, um, that's a very lovely quote, Nick. And I'm wondering what, if there was, um, what it was about it that led you to select it from among many for, for, the, for the grace of introducing this podcast. Well, I, um, you know, as we said, we wanted to relate um, beauty to morality. And I think one of the interesting conversations beyond beauty and morality is beauty and truth, right? And the notion mm. that what's more beautiful can sometimes supersede what is true. Um, and also the relationship of truth to morality, right? And as we saw last episode, that, for instance, to lie is to deny God because God and truth are related to one another. And I mean, if you, if you, subscribe to that then that kind of fits quite neatly into that perspective but even so it can still offer some insights 
Um, and and well, I mean, as you said, it's a it's a wholesome, beautiful quote. I'm a big fan of Roald Dahl. I've been meaning to bring him up for a while, really. I feel like <laughs> he doesn't float around conversation enough. In fact, I might go yeah. reread um, his his entire bibliography. And um, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I feel like it, it really, to be honest with you, summarizes most of my arguments for today's episode. So if you're really just looking for information, you could probably tune out. <laughs> well, don't do that yet, because I have I have some alternative, um, uh, not alternative, but some some other information and, and thoughts to, to share. Uh, how mm-hmm. useful that is to you. You have to decide um, before I get there, Nick. Uh, what's your favorite Roald Dahl book? What's my favorite Roald Dahl book? Mm, yeah that's a tricky one probably probably uh, you know i think it might have to be charlie and the chocolate factory it is a solid choice yeah it is you know there's uh there's only they don't they don't there's no there's no two willy wonkers you know and you tell that to gene wilder <laughs> and johnny depp <laughs> and the oompa loompas you know, that's, that's an unbeatable <laughs> combo. But Adam, uh, enough enough yeah. about um, Roald Dahl, friend of the show, for now. Mine is um, Danny Champion of the World, but okay. yes. Yes, I was, I was meaning to ask. Um, you're an anthropologist, which means that you, uh, you don't work, but also that um, you, <laughs> <laughs> you study um, different cultures around the world and you know the different yep. systems that they organize themselves as uh, that you use to organize their societies with um and and part of that involves morality and 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 i believe from our conversations um in anticipation of this one you you mentioned that there are some cultures who put beauty at the forefront of their morality or who at least emphasize it far more that we have a tendency to in um our Western traditions, shall we say? Um, and I was, I was hoping you could share some of that insight with with me and and anyone else listening. Yeah, um, I, I would I would love to. Um, and that is all that is all true. Um, and in fact, part of part of the I think the inspiration for this whole um, episode on on sort of the virtuous body um, comes from one paragraph, which sort of really stuck in my mind from uh, Wade Davis's book, uh, The Wayfinders. Um, Wade Davis is, a, is an anthropologist, uh, an ethnobotanist, and, and a former um, National Geographic explorer in residence. And it was after attending a, a talk from him that I actually wanted to study anthropology. Um, and he wrote this book called The Wayfinders, which um, is all about the, the wisdom that sort of indigenous societies can, can offer to, to non-indigenous societies. Um, and the paragraph goes like this. Off the shore of Sumatra, on the island of Sibirut, the Mentawai people recognize that spirits enliven everything that exists. Birds, plants, clouds, even the rainbows that arch across the sky. Rejoicing in the beauty of the world, these divine entities could not possibly be expected to reside in a human body that was not itself beautiful. Thus, the Mentawai came to believe that if nature lost its luster, if the landscape became drab, if they themselves as physical presence and creation ceased to do the honor, ceased to do honour to the essence of beauty, the primordial forces of creation would abandon this realm for the settlements of the dead, and all life would perish. To respect the ancestors and celebrate the living, the Mentawai, both men and women, devote their lives to the pursuit of aesthetic beauty, preening their bodies, filing their teeth, adding brilliant feathers to their hair, and inscribing delicate spiral patterns on their bodies. In daily life, they approach every task, however mundane, fully adorned. 
Wow, that's a, that's um, a beautiful passage. Yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a, he's what, a very um, enchanting writer. Uh, well, what it means is that um, the Mantawai, so the Mantawai are an indigenous uh, group that live um, in in on the island of Sibrut in in Indonesia, um, and it means that they. And if you look up the Mantawai, you see these incredible people. They have wonderful tattoos, um, quite in, in a sort of intimidating way. They sharpen their teeth. Um, and they, they had all sorts of dormant, and that's just how they go about their lives. And for them, it's a way of um, sort of respecting the natural order of things and, um, yeah, in, in, encouraging a, a sort of reflection of an acceptance of um, the, the beauty of, of creation. Um, and uh, if, if people are interested in more, more sort of detailed ethnographies of the Mentawai people, um, Glenn Reeves has written a lot about it on, on, on mentawai.org. Um, but I, I wanted to compare this, uh, Nick, to, to another society which, um, which uh, ha, ha, ascribes a certain um, moral and ethical value to the pursuit of beauty, and that's the ancient Greeks. Um, as they so often come up in in this podcast, um, and just a small extract from it. This is from a, a, an article written for the BBC by Bethany Hughes, um, and Bethany Hughes writes that for the Greeks, a beautiful body was considered direct evidence of a beautiful mind. They even had a word for it, kalos kagathos. I'm sure I've butchered that, kalos kagathos, which meant being gorgeous to look at and hence being a good person. And they competed in beauty contests, especially on Tenedos and Lesbos, and uh, people spent hours a day sort of working out for aesthetic purposes. And the reason I wanted to bring up both of these um, sort of ideals of aesthetic beauty is because I wanted to compare them a little bit and see how we could uh, draw information from that into the good life. Um, And it seems to me... And admittedly, this is from very limited information, but this is an unqualified show. Um, that there is a difference between the Mentawai approach to beauty and the Greek approach to beauty. It seems that the Greeks uh, seem to be pursuing beauty as an ideal, a sort of platonic ideal of beauty that they strive after. Like there's an epitome which has value in itself. Um, to be strived for. And certainly there is perhaps some value to dedicating yourself to to a cause um, that you believe is, is worthwhile. I think that's, that's to be admired. But the Mentawai seem to be pursuing beauty from the point of view that all tasks are important enough to be undertaken when one has made oneself uh, beautiful, when one has put effort into one's appearance as a sort of mark of respect for the world. Um, Tom Ford said that, uh, you know, dressing well is, is good manners. Um, and Ben Franklin said something similar, that to eat is to please thyself, but to dress is to please others. Or eat to please thyself, but dress to please others. Um, so I think that it's that there is, is something to be drawn in, in terms of the good life of um, taking care of one's day-to-day appearance as, as a mark of a sort of respect for the inherent beauty of creation and as a means to better internalize that and appreciate the world around us. Mm. Um, and I wonder um, if you would, would, would agree with these conclusions or indeed have, have an entirely different view, Nicholas. No, I think, I think um, that makes sense to me. I think there are ways in which, you know, those ideas can be taken further or applied to different contexts. I mean, for instance, <clears throat> you know, the fact that you distinguish between 
um, or that one can distinguish between, say, natural beauty and the sentiments which that can evoke, like this, the sublime mm. notion of romantic poems um, and poets, you know, this notion of awe at the wondrous beauty of nature and of our of our insignificance um, in relation to it. You know, there is something for that and, and like that appreciation of overwhelming beauty and majesty and grandeur can be humbling and a reminder of our own human condition. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, the notion of, of, um, of beauty within the self or um, without the self on the, on the external front um, and, and how that affects the way in which we interact in society can be um, both uh, a humble practice, you know, um, if it is like, um, I, I'm sorry, I forgot the name of the uh, Indonesian, uh, the Indonesian tribe, the, the Antawai. Uh, Mentawai. Mentawai, right. Um, yeah. To do so, you know, to, to, to be beautiful for the sake of communing um, harmoniously with nature, which I think stems from a sense of both humility and pride. Um, and, mm. and, you know, as well as, you know, well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say that Tom Ford, or Benjamin Franklin are the epitomes of humility, but um, their quotes <laughs> certainly point to a certain, um, a certain, you know, bashful. I guess bashful arrogance is probably probably truer <laughs> um, than 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 humility. But then, of course, you know, you can also get carried away with that, and I think there are ways in which that superficial sure. appearance as the decisive marker of one's value as an individual um, or of one's moral compass can be dangerous, you know? Um, and, and I think actually the notion of celebrity accentuates that. Um, yeah. And, and the, the tools of social media and the internet kind of um, are catalysts for that exploding, you know, as a trend. And, and, and so what I mean by that is that in the sense of celebrity, you know, we often um, uh, look up to and live in a culture that has a tendency to worship um, celebrities, uh, for lack of a better word. And and more often than not, the celebrities are people who are at least dressed well, you know, um, yeah. or, or dressed expensively. Um, and, and quite often... <laughs> which also, is not necessarily the same thing. Which is not necessarily the same thing, hence the distinction. Or, um, or you know, very often also like, uh, you know, beauty um beauty icons sex symbols you know like um th th like for instance like time magazine sexiest man alive has never been someone we've never heard of you know <laughs> <laughs> it's always a that's celebrity, an excellent point right it's always that's a celebrity so we so we always like we look to people who already have advantages over us or who we have a tendency to look up to for beauty markers as well. And so like this kind of gold standard of superiority and beauty and of being a better person is often tied to that. And then I, the reason why I say social media can accentuate that is because of like the kind of superficial nature of, of likes, right? And of um, what that does to, you know, also people's ability to um, filter themselves and to airbrush themselves into ways in which they want to look. Um, because, and I think there it goes not necessarily just to the point of like, humility and paying respect to others but um rather having having uh, you know certain image of yourself in your head that you want to put across yeah i i, I agree with you um to, to an extent um in that there there is a you know a, a culture of perhaps of, of pursuing um 
beauty and little else um, and that perhaps is is where the, the danger lies i don't know the extent to which this is a new um phenomenon um i know instagram has, has perhaps changed the game a little bit but um i i mean i this 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 greek ideal that i mentioned we know about because of the overwhelming persistence of of statues and artwork from that period which shows these you know beautiful people as as, a, as an aesthetic ideal uh, in fact i read another article which i did not um sadly write the source down for in in my notes um which made the argument that which said that uh, it used to be believed that um greek statues uh represented sort of a an, an ideal of beauty but now there is some evidence that a lot of them were, were at least initially cast from from live models Right. Um, and, uh, and, and the, the author also made the point that, um, there is a, uh, a, 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 st a statue of, um, the, the, uh, there's a, a, I think a fresco or, or two statues, which is a, a conversation between a, a goddess Aphrodite and, um, Heracles and, uh, a Aphrodite is, is, you know, a, a literal goddess, sort of an otherworldly unattainable beauty, but Heracles is a man and, um, and, and, looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, like um, mm, at his prime. Mm. Not now, probably. Um, that's probably not what they're after. But he's still a very ripped man in his 70s. Not the point. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, so I, I, I think this... But I, this certainly cautioning against um, beauty being the, 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 the be-all and end-all um, has a long legacy, starting, I suppose, with, with Narcissus and, and um, going up through uh, literature since then, which I believe is something that yeah. you're, you're going to talk to us I about. Am, yeah, before uh, I now. say that, I was going to say that all, uh, like Christian theology has differing and interesting aspects, like notions with, with regards to beauty. And, and there was a sense of like humbling mm. oneself and of like stripping oneself of any kind of material gain. And, and part of that can be of like physical display. You know, um, mm -hmm. but also Jesus often has an eight pack on the cross. So, you know, just put, a, put that out yeah, there. Yeah, but I, I think that was some, uh, I, I think that was some, some poetic license after the fact. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, I'm saying, I'm saying in terms of representation, right? And like, have you with, ever, go, go on. No, with, with regards to, um, the Greeks portraying all of their gods or the majority of their gods as like, um, aesthetically beautiful, um, the, the the same is also true in parts of Christianity, right? In that sense, have have you uh, have you ever been to um, uh, Exhibition Road in South Kensington, Nick, where the uh, the Mormon Center is? No, I've not had that pleasure. Well, it's so Exhibition Road is a is a street in London, um, which is is quite a beautiful street. You've got uh, Imperial College on the on the one side, then the Science Museum behind that, and the Victorian Albert Museum opposite that, and the Natural History Museum at the end of the road. It's quite a grand area, and at the top of the road is um, the the London Centre for the Church of Latter Day Saints, uh, and in the window they have a window that is just a display cabinet in which they have a statue of Jesus, but. <laughs> He, he looks like Chris Hemsworth as Thor. He's so <laughs> jacked. He's the buffest representation of Jesus I've ever seen. That's which, um, for an Iron Age Palestinian carpenter, maybe not super realistic, but um, but but always always makes me chuckle. Well, I um, maybe post it on her Instagram. <laughs> yeah, maybe um. I will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, um, that's, uh, that's, yeah, thank you. Thank you for those insights. And, um, you're welcome. 
we we um, hopefully can take some of those into into this next part of the conversation, which um, I, I will I will oversee officiously, expeditiously, <laughs> <laughs> because Excellent. you know I I am. Um, uh, an, an English and philosophy graduate, uh, a man of letters, which which also means that I don't work, um, but means that I have some <laughs> insights as to um, the relationship or the role of beauty um, in literature and particularly what that does to morality. And um, uh, we to... should have become engineers. <laughs> yeah, we still could, but I would rather sit here and complain. Um, <laughs> Therein lies the crux. But yes, you can speak very interestingly on, on literature. Well, and um, I, I hope you do. Don't set the bar that high. I can speak about it. You can speak on literature. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, yeah, so I wanted to use two, two texts in order to illustrate um, a couple of points. Uh, the first of which is Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. Um, and the second is The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, which might mm -hmm. seem both like obvious choices. Um, and if they aren't, then I will explain to you why I picked them, starting with metamorphosis. Um, if you're not familiar with Franz Kafka, he was basically a, um, basically a, 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 like a, a civil servant who hated his job and was a bit of a social recluse um, and had kind of a miserable social uh, love life and um, wrote a lot actually in the first quarter of the 20th century and um, was so self-critical that he didn't really publish a huge amount and requested uh, on his deathbed that um, one of his close friends, one of his few friends, burn all the manuscripts that had not been published and that all the books that had been published go out of production. But um, uh, his friend famously ignored that. Um, and uh, as a result of which, we, we still got to see a majority of the things that he had written or still a significant amount of them of which there are um, mm -hmm. quite a few classics, and they really rose to prominence um, after the Second World War. I think the evils of bureaucracy and totalitarianism that he railed about um, uh, in the 1910s and 20s really uh, came to the forefront of uh, European ideology <laughs> um, after World War II, for whatever reasons uh, that might be. And um, he has a, a particular writing style Kafka, which um, often sees us starting stories kind of halfway through things um, with no real sure. explanation for why circumstances come about, um, but really just an attempt at uh, elaborating on them and then creating some sort of a denouement, uh, some sort of a, a conclusion, which, which we often don't even arrive at. So he really kind of <laughs> like writes the middle of stories. Um, and, and that's, that's an interesting quality. He, he was also, um, uh, based in Prague, I believe, and, um, wrote, wrote primarily yeah. in German. Um, and his books have been translated by, uh, very many people, in fact. And, um, I will, I will tell you who translated these, but, um, not right now. <laughs> 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 Wait, hold on. I'm uh, I'm reading these on my Kindle. Actually, I wanted so I wanted to start before talking about um, Metamorphosis by um, basically reading you an extract from Metamorphosis. If you bear with me for just a second, Please I do. will I will I will find it. So 
uh, worth worth actually maybe before I do read you this quote, uh, I will give you a little bit of a synopsis quickly of what has happened up until this point. Um, so the story follows a man called Gregor Samsa, who has a sister and two parents, um, is a traveling salesman and provides the majority of the income for his family. And he wakes up one day as a giant cockroach, basically. And um, we find him awake as a cockroach. And that's where the story starts. And um, his instinct of the salesman means that he has locked all of his doors because he's often uh, sleeping abroad. Um, and so there are two doors that lead into his room. Um, one, I think, connects to his sister's chambers and the other leads into the hallway. And on one side, you have his parents and on the other, his sister, um, both of whom are trying to understand why it is that he has not left for work yet. And that it's nearing mm-hmm. seven o'clock and normally he leaves by like five or six um, and mm-hmm. he, meanwhile, has a rather ordinary approach um, to having been transformed into a cockroach, um, where he's he's trying to mitigate the anxiety that his parents are feeling at him not leaving off to work. And part of that anxiety is the fact that he's the sole provider for the family. Um, right. And um, and he's quite confident that whatever he is feeling, um, he is going to shake off, and that he's kind of living in this surreal. It's kind of like magic realism, right? Like these particularly surreal strange experiences just seem rather commonplace um sure yeah and uh, eventually the, the 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 company sends the chief clerk over in order to figure out what it is that um he's doing and why he's not at work and he manages with great effort to roll himself off his back onto his scrawny legs um and to turn the key in the lock and to open up that door and when he greets his parents and the chief clerk there's like a big fright a big panic the chief clerk runs away his father beats him back into his room with a cane and um and he realizes also at that point that like what felt like he could initially communicate has slowly deteriorated and now he just emits these weird hisses and actually can't understand um or can't be understood by people hmm. around him. So he finds himself locked in his room and his sister, who's the, I guess the kindest hearted of the lot, um, continues to feed him, um, but she can't bear the stench or the sight of him. So he always crawls under the, the, the sofa whenever she walks into the room um, and puts food down and, um, and, then, and, then, and then walks back out. And um, yeah, so this is the second night that he has like, uh, or the first night, after the first night, the second day um, of, of his cockroach existence. And um, this is a paragraph that I wanted to read to you. Early the next morning, while it was almost still night, Gregor had an opportunity to put his resolutions um, to the test because the door from the hallway opened and his sister, almost completely dressed, looked in on him with some agitation. It took her a while to find him, but when she spotted him under the sofa, my God, he had to be somewhere, he couldn't have flown off into space, she was so terrified that in an uncontrollable revulsion, she slammed the door shut. But then, as if sorry for her behavior, she straightway opened the door again and tiptoed in as if calling on a grave invalid or even a stranger. Gregor had pushed his head forward to the edge of the sofa and observed her. Would she notice that he had left his milk, and then not by any means because he wasn't hungry, and would she bring him in some different food that would suit him better? If she failed to do so of her own accord, then he preferred to die rather than tell her, even though he did feel an incredible urge to shoot out from under the sofa, hurl himself at his sister's feet, and, uh, and, sorry, hurl himself at his sister's feet and ask her for some nice tidbits to eat. But his sister was promptly startled by the sight of the full dish, from which only a little milk had been spilled round the edges. She picked it up right away, not with her bare hands, but with a rag, and carried it out. (laughs) 
so um uh what i thought was interesting about this passage is that it kind of illuminates the the fact that his sister is making desperate efforts to try and take care of him but it's so much against her nature to do that um that she's really struggling and that his altered heavily diminished state um makes it virtually impossible to communicate his discomforts you know and and progressively mm-hmm. isolates him further and further um and now there are very many different ways in which we can um think of this book i don't want to give away the ending in case you want to go read it for yourself i think it's definitely worth reading it's like a short story it's like doesn't take that long probably 40 50 pages and it's like sure. really perfectly crafted as a story um as a work of literature it's great um what i think was interesting about that is that um Gregor Samsa the main character loses his appearance before he loses his humanity. So he becomes uh this mm. giant kind of vermin and becomes shunned by his entire family and becomes unbearable to stand the sight of all the whilst remaining um the same kind of kind-hearted individual who continues to be paranoid about his um family's um situation now that he can no longer work. and wondering about what he's going to do and you know how he can possibly still express his gratefulness for the fact that his sister is taking care of him or how he can try and stop his parents from fearing him as they do um and that they can't you know come into contact with him so he you know he's he's making all these efforts to try and remain uh, friendly um and humane but um unfortunately unfortunately that doesn't um that doesn't work out um as you will see if you read that um so so yeah so an interesting an interesting example of beauty lost in a sense you could say or or um of the dehumanization of someone due to a deformation it could be read as a very literal metaphor in that sense of course it's just an allegory perhaps it's just perhaps it's just a story um and you know maybe kafka just intended humor by it um but we could we could certainly see it in that way um and mm-hmm. and you know I, i guess i wanted to draw attention to the fact that um inevitably perhaps a, a a radical change in one's appearance will eventually prompt a radical change in character and perhaps that speaks a little bit to the to the relationship of beauty in the individual or aesthetically um and their character their morality yeah that's that's interesting I mean dehumanization is this, is a significant trope in the marginalization of people's right. So like this is just made literal but like to make someone less than human um makes it then much easier to outcast them. Um particularly when you can attribute that to physical features, you know, and dehumanize people in that sense. And that has existed as a trend quite potently. Not to say that that's what he's touching upon and again like that could be a rather literal reading of the metaphor. but it certainly can lend itself to such an interpretation um and and well on the other side of that um i think what's what what the what i wanted to bring up um Oscar Wilde's novel The Picture of Dorian Gray which was at a time one of my very favorite books and that i've read quite a few times um for the same reasons that i'm not tired of it which are <laughs> essentially his his um flowery flowery um witty language um is is and you know but it's 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 still a beautiful story and i think it speaks a lot to that because it detaches the idea of morality this thing that Roald Dahl was speaking about um and the ability to distinguish one's character from one's appearance right mm-hmm. um so if you don't know the story of um 
the picture of Dorian Gray, well, the premise is, you know, it's set in basically late Victorian London, um, end of the 19th century. And um, it follows basically Dorian Gray, who, uh, when we meet him, is this young, extremely beautiful, extremely, like, world-naive model who is posing for an artist, Basil, um, you know, some sort of, like, an, an aristocratic, rather elusive uh, artist who has a friend over, Lord Henry, who's basically, like, um, the, the, the vocal piece of Oscar Wilde's philosophy throughout right. the whole book. Um, and who basically comes in and is struck by the beauty of this young man and basically makes himself aware of his own beauty and of the fact that inevitably it must fade. And that the beauty, um, which has up until this point allowed Dorian Gray to conduct himself throughout the world with supreme confidence, will fade. And in the midst of that existential crisis um, brought about by th that awareness, um, Dorian exclaims, oh, I wish I could hold on to this beauty forever. And... Uh, that gets taken literally by whatever controlling spirit rules the world of the book. <laughs> and um, that's exactly what happens. So Dorian remains beautiful forever. Um, but the price is that the portrait which was being painted of him at the time of that sitting actually starts to age in his stead. Yeah. And um, he keeps this portrait upstairs in his room and he grows more perversely ugly with every um, day that passes because as innocent as he remains, it becomes such an attractive and engrossing shield for the people around him um, that he is one of the few people who is able to act sinfully and not bear the marks of that on his person, basically. And so right. he, he becomes very debauched and depraved as an individual in his behavior and rumors start circulating to that effect. But those rumors lose all credibility when people come and meet him at one of his fancy parties or whatever and go like this supremely beautiful pure naive looking individual cannot possibly be the same author of these crimes that we attribute to him meanwhile the portrait in the attic ages disgracefully and he looks evil and twisted and sordid on that picture Right. Yeah. Um, and so, again, this this really, you know, I mean, Oscar Wilde likes to say that, there, you know, I mean, one of the quotes from the book is that there are no such thing as um, uh, moral or immoral books, only good and bad ones. But um, it feels like there is a morale <laughs> here, maybe. <laughs> and at least yeah. certainly there is a connection between um, uh, beauty and character here, you know, and I think maybe it, it takes the elaboration of the Royal Dahl quote, the quote that I started with a bit further. Um, and and leads one to ask whether whether or not whether or not our 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 actions um, you know for better or worse ultimately will affect our beauty in that sense you know mm -hmm. and I, I mean I don't think it's that straightforward um, but I, I certainly think there is some truth to that um, and I actually don't want to say really more to it but I just did want to draw attention to it as a as a particularly strong example of the relationship of beauty and morality being uh, discussed um, in literature. Yeah, that's um, that's that's very interesting. I suppose, in a way, I I prepared for this episode. I didn't end up reading it at the beginning. Um, a, a quote from Keats, which is, uh, "Beauty is truth, truth beauty. That is all ye on earth. That that is all ye know on earth, and all ye need to know." Um, and and Keats there is is staking a claim that human imagination and and passions intertwine beauty and ethics right i wonder if oscar wilde is is um rejecting that through through dorian gray saying no 
beauty is is a lie and clouds us to the truth. Um, mm. And I and I wonder if he um, did so out of the out of the a same sort of uh, disdain for a perceived celebrity culture that we that we feel now. Um, you know, it was a, 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 around the same time, presumably, uh, Dickens wrote that famous line. Uh, it was the age of um, it was the age of hope. It was the age of despair, and then it all you know the and uh, in short, it was so like the present time. As to, I wish I knew this quote because it's wonderful. Um, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times, you know. And it's like that's how it is today right. too. Uh, and I wonder if there's a little bit of of that going on here. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that's definitely something which was felt at that time. I think what's interesting about Oscar Wilde is that he was at the heart of that kind of celebrity culture. Sure, um, yeah. He was he was one of those uh, writers who was sort of more famous than his books, and that was kind of right. Um, not rare. I mean, but like you know, Dickens was known for his work and for his readings, um, and then maybe for you know his charitable efforts. Eventually, as we've discussed. But um, Oscar Wilde was sort of just known for being a good dinner guest, you know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like he was just so, yeah. so there, there, like he kind of enjoyed the benefits of that, um, as much as being damned by that same culture for his flowery ostentatiousness and and ultimately his sexuality, right? Um, well, and, I, I believe that ending uh, his life miserably. Yeah, I believe a picture of Dorian Gray was actually used as evidence in his trial for. Um, sodomy which was something you could go to trial for in those days apparently um but uh but yeah so so that's 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 an interesting um observation um nick what uh from these these two texts quite quite different uh in some ways Mm. and in in some ways very similar what conclusion should we draw with regards to the good life or not even Um, conclusions what further avenues of thought should we pursue you know, well, I think I think um, as we established two distinctions earlier on um, with regard to like beauty in philosophy, you know, there is there is such a thing as um, beauty um, organized harmoniously with nature, you know, and mm-hmm. beauty as a manifestation of the most excellent form of ourselves, you know, whether in a physical sense or in the mental and spiritual sense, you know, um, Beauty can be a, an identifier of excellence in that sense. Sure. Um, and it's something to which we gravitate to naturally um, as, I think, a very human inclination and actually a very humane inclination. Um, but of course, we can allow ourselves to be run over by standards of beauty and the value of beauty in pricing individuals um, in the social sphere. You know, we, we spoke about the social credit system mm-hmm. last week and... Um, and in some senses, like the social currency of our worlds definitely uh, has beauty play a role within that, you know, at the, at the level of, of humans. And um, we, 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 as you have established, is not something that's new, but um, it's certainly something that reinvents itself every generation and comes with its own particular challenges, you know. And maybe, maybe we have our own particular challenges to address with that. Um, sure. So I don't know that there are any particular conclusions that I would draw from that, but rather just, you know, uh, I guess a reinforcement of the notion that beauty, truth and morality have particular relationships to one another, um, but that we shouldn't confuse them for one another either. 
yeah, um, I think that's uh, wise moving forward uh, in your in in our daily lives. Um, and I'm I'm happy to leave it there if if you are. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Great, um, great chat. Some interesting ideas. Lot, lot floating around. If I do say so myself, and I do. <laughs> Adam, you're you're yeah. you're our you're our social media guy. Do you have any I admin am. to plug? Yeah, follow us on Twitter at GoodLifeCast. I made a Twitter, <laughs> and I swear one day I'll learn how to use it. <laughs> nah, you know that. If that's not progress, I don't know what is. <laughs> I made one tweet. Exciting. And it was a link to episode eight of season two. Well, there you go. So, you know, anytime, anytime now was set to blow. And um, yeah, if I, if I would add anything to, through the usual communication channels, do get in touch with us. You know, if, if you can think of other examples um, in literature or elsewhere um, uh, that we haven't covered, which I'm sure, I'm sure there are copious amounts of. Then, then please do write to, write to us, you know, for our own benefits as well as hopefully a fruitful conversation that we can share with you and maybe share with uh, the rest of our audience going forward. Um, yeah, that that sounds that all sounds good. That sounds um, like a happy time, very succinct. Nick, please cleanse my palate. <laughs> are, you, are we going? Gladly. Are we? Uh, Nick, Nick, is it time yes. to go to get 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 our get our Swimming trunks on, grab our towels, and d- dive it's, into the world of underwater. It's time, Adam. It's time because, um, in keeping with this season's fun fact theme, I am uh, remaining maritime. And uh, today, my fun fact is that uh, recently, as recently as as a month ago, uh, researchers found a a um, large detached coral reef measuring more than five hundred meters in height in the Great wow. Barrier Reef Marine Park in Australia. Um, and now this is significant because um, that's, a, that's a lot of reef. Um, mm. that's, that's about one and a half times an Eiffel Tower in height. Wow. And um, it's significant because it's detached. So whilst it um, uh, you know, lives in the area of the Great Barrier Reef, um, it's it's also separate to it, and as far as we know, hasn't been affected by the recent bleaching events, right? Um, oh, of interesting. The, of the of the um, Great Barrier Reef, so so it's still very much alive and blooming. So it seems, um, and I know that we often hear about the Great Barrier Reef and these other um, maritime ecosystems as being threatened. So it's always good news when we basically found find a very lively mountain. Um, thriving yeah. with life, uh, teeming with wow. life. It's the eighth known detached coral reef in the area and the first to be discovered in the past 120 years. So, wow. So, yeah, good news. Good news. Still so much to discover in the oceans. Who so even knows what's down in the there? Ocean. Indeed, indeed. Um, well, thank you very much for that, Nick. That was indeed a fun fact. Um, my fun fact, I actually changed halfway through this episode because I wasn't very happy with mine and something you, you said made me think of one, um, which is it, it, it's uh, and the, the bit that inspired it was when you, you talked about um, Gregor flipping himself over um, as a cockroach. And it made me mm. think of a, of a uh, shape that was developed by some mathematical researchers um, whose, whose name escapes me um, called the Gombok. 
And a gumbok is is uh, the world's sort of only self-writing shape. It's a three-dimensional shape, and no matter which way you put it down, it will revert to its um, to its sort of the right side up. And it took years for mathematicians to to develop this. And then once they had, um, they discovered. Uh, oh, this was Gabor Domokos at the uh, Budapest University of Technology and Economics. Um, and after Gabor Domokos developed this shape, he, uh, or someone else, discovered that uh, turtles had naturally, or tortoises had naturally evolved this shape on their shells. Wow. Yeah. That's great. To help them with self-writing. That's awesome. So, so... Um... Basically, it'll, it'll always, it'll always, a gombok always lands on its feet. <laughs> yeah. Much like us, uh, a gombok always lands on its feet. Um, and on that note, Nick, I'm, I'm happy to end if you are. Um, thank you so much for podding with me, as always. Thank you for bearing with my sort of lackadaisical approach to speaking and saying things today. I don't quite know what's happened. I think I should <laughs> rectify it with more coffee um <laughs> i i can't think of a worse idea but um by all means knock yourself out um and uh, and yeah it was it was a, it was a pleasure uh as always and to you dear listener thank you and with love and rage we'll see you next time bye bye bye